0: gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch, the podcast in which Ethan and I talk about books, but today we're going to be talking about the listener responses to the books that we've talked about and our discussion of said books, and we're not talking about Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett.
1: I'm your guest, Ethan Bartlett, and I'm very proud of you for putting that as succinctly as you possibly could.
0: Thanks! (laughs) I worked really hard on that sentence as it was coming out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I Um, I believe you. Yep, yep.
1: I do believe all the words you just said.
0: Uh, So yes, this is our listener response special. We are taking some of the questions and comments from uh, our listeners and responding to them, uh, which is what listener response special means. Thank you. (laughs) I feel like this podcast just evolves into Tautology Club a lot.
1: I, you know, as the president of Tautology Club, I would like to say that I am, in fact, the president of Tautology Club.
0: (laughs) And also that uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. I would expect no less. <laughs> uh, so, uh, we are not in a room for this episode, nor are we drinking scotch. Nope. We're in separate rooms drinking separate drinks. That uh, are not scotch. That are not scotch. My drink, for example, is a Flederblom Soft Campari Old Fashioned.
1: I still say that you've made that first word up.
0: No, it's Swedish. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> it just means elderflower juice, <laughs> and
1: but you couldn't go ahead and just say elderflower juice. Oh no, nope,
0: nope, nope. I gotta use the real
1: word. <laughs> <laughs> that you're pretty sure is a real word.
0: <laughs> that I'm pretty
1: sure is the real <laughs> word.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. So yes, uh, it's 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 an old fashioned or constructed much like an old fashioned with uh, the the sweet and bitters base, and the sweet is instead of sugar. It's got the, the blown soft.
1: That Michael just uh, made up.
0: And uh, then the bitters are the J. Thomas bitters. Uh, from and the
1: Bitter the, Truth.
0: From the Bitter Truth, yes. Cocktail
1: company, which we are not being paid to advertise unless they hear this <laughs> and like us.
0: And decide to pay us to advertise.
1: Post, post, uh, post-advertisement. post, post-advertisement. Post-facto, ipso-post-facto-advertisementum.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: That's good and accurate Latin, and you know it.
0: <laughs> Do I? <laughs> Do I know it? Um, yes, so with those bitters and then Campari, and to cut the bitterness of the Campari just a little bit more, I added just a dash of lemon juice. So
1: Very good. That's what sounds, I'm thinking. It does sound very good. Thanks. As much as I, I would like just it. pour the Campari meat into a glass and drink it in all its bitter, bitter bitterness.
0: I mean, there's that too. And I do like Campari with all I'm of its.
1: Definitely meant to say bitter, bitter, bitterness, and was not like actively trying to think of some sort of metaphor. <laughs> it was a conscious choice on my part, and not a failure.
0: Yeah, all right, I think let's we'll all be gracious and assume that any time we think Ethan has made a mistake, we'll assume it was a conscious choice on his part.
1: <laughs> I do actually wish everyone in my life would sign that contract, or even like <laughs> sort of gentlemen's agreement that contract. but so far hasn't hasn't really worked out that way
0: (laughs) uh what are you drinking ethan i
1: am drinking a cocktail called three dots and a dash which is according to my research sort of a classic tiki cocktail um i i found the recipe the other night because i had acquired a bottle of allspice dram which is an old uh, apparently Caribbean um, liqueur that basically tastes like if you took allspice berries and just boiled them in rum until there was nothing but like the essence of allspice left. Um, Love it. It's delicious. It is very strong when drunk straight. There is about like a quarter of an ounce of uh, Hmm. the allspice dram in this like whatever three to four ounce cocktail. And... (laughs) definitely allspice is like the main note in it um there's also some falernum some lem- uh not lemon but lime juice uh some orange juice it's a dark rum base um mm-hmm. it's just very good uh yeah i do like it a lot now michael don't cheat where do you think the title three dots and a dash comes from
0: Oh, I don't know. I think it's probably Morse code for the letter V. So, based on that, when would you think that this cocktail was
1: uh, uh, created?
0: Just going off the top of my head, I didn't even listen to the question you asked. I'd say World War Two.
1: Well, it's interesting that you uh, did specify that, and also in a Southern accent, which is the voice you use <laughs> when you're lying. But um, I'm gonna go. Oh ahead. no,
0: you know my tell. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's also very upsetting when you play poker and you're, you're just like, I have a real garbage hand, but I'm going to bet on it and I definitely don't have two aces up here. <laughs> and we're like, yes, Michael, we believe you. And then you're shocked that we all know that you're full of crap.
0: Yeah, I don't understand. Yeah,
1: I, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh yeah, no, it you were you are weirdly correct. It is a <laughs> World War ii era cocktail, the the V and in fact the Morse code also for V is a common um sort of a motif uh, in in various cultural ephemera from that era sort of a mm-hmm. you know just just uh the allies reassuring themselves that victory would be achieved and it was. So who's to who's to say it wasn't because they you know named cocktails after morse code for v um yeah apparently that could be apparently uh the classic garnish for this is three cherries on a pick sort of signifying that that uh that uh, three three dots i guess the pick could be the dash too now that i think about it
0: yeah yeah if you held it up right yeah uh that'd be cool yeah so that's Mm -hmm. what i'm
1: drinking it's very very
0: delicious all right and here we are awesome Uh, well, with that, how about you call your wife over and have her, uh, read us the rules? Yeah,
1: Karen, why don't you read us the rules? Okay. (laughs) Karen, what are the rules?
2: Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed if any mothers are mentioned the mentioner loses rule three Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph if he does he loses rule four Michael must never say the words vampire vampiric or any derivative thereof if he does he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI.
1: And what happens if someone breaks the
2: rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone... Drink responsibly.
1: Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Well, thank you. Thank you, Karen. Uh, <laughs> that was delightful. It's weird that <laughs> you did read the rules the exact same way you do when Michael and I are in the same room, even though you can see that Michael is on a video screen here, but...
0: Yeah, that's really right, right. <laughs>
1: Yes, you're very helpful. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so helpful. <laughs> oh yeah yeah so i mean yeah we're not drinking scotch even though she said scotch we're not gonna talk about a book i mean we'll talk a lot about, about a lot of books we, probably. we will
1: talk about things tangentially related to books
0: right right so oh well we'll uh we'll take that then and um once we uh clink our glasses and salute then the rules will take effect and we'll get to our listeners questions Excellent. Excellent. All right. Machayim. Schlank. <laughs>
1: do. This is uh you forwarded this to me going on a year ago last March um it ended now the following February. Uh but it was submitted from our from our uh, uh website by Mike Buchanan one of our like earliest mm-hmm. and best listeners to the show uh and in response to you sending this to me I did say this is stupendous. We have to mention it next episode. Which, as I say, we I said to you a year ago. Yep. <laughs> um, which is about the right turnaround time for this for this show, really. Yeah. Uh, but so Mike uh, was responding to um, a point which I did I did some work, Michael. I know you'll be shocked. Um,
0: I am. I am shocked. But
1: it's uh, it's at right about fifty six minutes into the final cut of um part one of a wrinkle in time um in which my wife karen was also sassy uh so there's some full circle for you <laughs> that never I happens i mean it does always happen but it doesn't always happen on this show thankfully <laughs> um but yeah so karen was was guesting on the a wrinkle in time episode and mentioned about charles wallace that um he didn't talk until age four and what she said was that he, because she's a computer programmer, so of course she had to put it in these terms, that he... Uh...
2: Just like the fact that he was actually unable to communicate, so he was taking in information but yeah. not putting it out. Yeah. He had input, but not output. Uh-huh. I work in, I'm a programmer now.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so Mike's uh, response to that was, my silly impression is that she thought of Pre-talking Charles as write-only memory, which uh, <laughs> he he sent a, then then sent the link to um, the Wikipedia article write-only memory parentheses joke because there's also write-only memory parentheses engineering which I assume is some sort of real thing, um, by which I mean real boring. So we're not gonna worry about that. But <laughs> uh, um, apparently the term <laughs> write-only yeah. memory started as a a sort of joke among like computer programmers or computer engineers um often still used as a joke or a euphemism for like a bad memory device um so write-only memory conceptually is the opposite of read-only memory uh which is you know a term you might be familiar with from cd-rom the rom part stands for read-only memory um which essentially read-only memory is when something is encoded, like a CD, you can only have it give information back to you. You can't write new information onto it. Um, mm-hmm. So write-only memory would be sort of the flip side of that, which would be uh, where you can only um, write memory on or write information onto something. You can't get the memory back. Um, mm-hmm. So imagine if you had, I mean, even a CD or like a podcast cassette that you could only record onto, but you could never play back in any way. Um, mm-hmm. The That would know, obviously be useless, which is sort of part of the joke. Um, I actually do encourage the uh, gentle listener to go ahead and look up the Wikipedia article write-only memory joke. Um, there's some stuff that I don't want to take the time to go into here, mm-hmm. but it is an old, old joke, like the, the article quotes the apple official 2e reference manual which came out in 1982 um which apparently has right only memory as a sort of buried joke in an otherwise very serious uh uh you know manual whatever um Mm -hmm. but it's yeah it's it's worth looking up uh once you understand all of this context to get this joke um and you know mike mike called it his silly impression but like i i think it's sort of a joke version of exactly what karen was saying um Mm -hmm. the idea that charles wallace is is sort of a you know sort of by his own choice but but he's very much someone who takes in information and and you know is always sort of watching and and listening and and um Mm -hmm. you know taking in information but he outputs very little like probably Mm -hmm. except for like his favorite sister meg and and it's right. very select other people in situations. At the beginning of the book, he would not output at all if he had his his mm-hmm. Um
0: right? Which is kind of his whole character arc, and that gets at part of the the theme of the book itself—that idea of communication. That uh, you know he takes in this information, never gives any out until he kind of grows yeah. as a person and learns to communicate and then converse. And sort of and, the, uh, the point of his growing
1: yeah. as a person is to it's that turn outwards. That's sort of the classic, mm-hmm. you know, coming of age, um, uh, character arc, I guess, or you know, just sort of the idea right. of growing as a person is and becoming a better person, especially in the the very Christian context that um, Langle sort of situates her book in, largely, uh, right, and mm-hmm. probably would say that you know is what she came out of or was heavily influenced by. Um, it's always that turn outwards from the the selfishness of of um almost the selfishness of a right only memory to turning outwards right. and, and connecting with others and um even the climax of the book could be looked at through this lens and here we are going ahead and just intellectualizing mike's mike's uh, joke to death
0: his joke um, <laughs> which if he didn't
1: expect us to do i don't know why he was writing to us in the first place but um right you know it's it is that that uh idea that it in that final confrontation almost forces like sort of gets the the right only stuff that that charles had buried and almost forces it out of him and um Mm -hmm. you know you could say charles is faced with a choice then what what do you do when that happens do you grow as a person or do you let it sort of make you selfish um he of course had put himself in that situation in order to try to save his father but you know that's that's sort of a furtherance of that that character arc or that theme,
0: right? Right, yeah, and uh, it occurs to me too as we're talking about this that this idea of the right only memory would also apply quite well to one of the books that we'll be talking about in some upcoming episodes, uh, The Plains by Uh-ho. Jill renane Uh huh, I don't know if I want to spend a lot of time talking about well, that right now. Spoil you'll anything. just Exactly. You'll just have to tune back us, in when we talk yeah, about that. Yeah, the plot of us talking wow. about the
1: planes is uh, very, very spoilable, and you know, mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. not wanting to know that everyone, including the viewers, will die in Infinity War Part Two. You would not want to know that. Uh, whatever it was you were going to say <laughs> about the planes. Oh, uh, 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 yep. Th- and you know, I. Obviously can't see inside your head yet, but um, I have some guesses as <laughs> to what you're talking about. I can definitely. You're working see on it. it I, I mean, we are both drinking our potions regularly and and working up to. Th- we're we're like almost there sometimes, but we're gonna. Yep, we'll yep. only get better. We're getting there to the great chagrin yeah, of right. your wife.
0: Practice, practice. <laughs> uh, all right. So should we go on to our next uh, response yes. here? All right, I've got a, a question here from uh, listener Ben Tekken. Benjamin. Uh, he... Benjamin. I just
1: wanted to say Benjamin. That's
0: really all I have on that. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so Ben says, uh, thinking of East of Eden and, I suppose, Ocean at the End of the Lane, one question I have for you and Ethan is... Who would make it on your list of top literary female villains and why?
1: Oh, that's an interestingly specific sort of a question
0: there. Top literary female villains. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was, he, he already kind of listed one for me. Uh, Kathy Ames from East of Eden. Sure. Definitely climbs up to the top of the list somewhere up <laughs> there.
1: See what you did there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, other female literary villains
1: That's a yeah I it's one of those things that I know I have some
0: Sure the the, the other one that's coming to mind for me right now would be Lady Macbeth
1: Oh sure Uh but uh, I'm I'm tempted to get into a whole digression that would only be interesting to the two of us and maybe not even <laughs> to that whole group um to ask like whether she is a villain um
0: oh yeah that could be a whole nother podcast. Yeah, yeah it could Just be. Just yeah. talking about that.
1: Yeah. Uh and you know I mean and you could there there's a couple angles you could take on that because like you could say is she a villain in the sense that the play is filled with like she's one of the main characters of the play so she could be a hero and a villain which would obviously make her sort of an anti-hero. Um mm-hmm. but also there's the whole like feminist critique you could say is she truly a villain or is she a product of sort of what the world has sure. forced her to be um is she responding to that uh mm-hmm. i don't know if any of those questions are super interesting but they're definitely valid uh, oh sure um, sure in the right hand uh, they yeah. definitely could be interesting i guess is what i'm trying to say i just don't necessarily think mine are the right ones being big clumsy <laughs> and male as they are
0: <laughs> yeah <it's... laughs> there's that yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm also BSing a little bit here because like
0: trying to find a trying to think of a think, good yeah. female villain.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: I'm not sure if I can think of any others right off the bat. I mean, um what's her name from uh, Ocean of, at the End of the Lane is in there? I mean, she's too. yeah,
1: she's a very she's... good one though. Now, now you get into the question of like do you call her a female uh you know sure sure she's definitely i mean
0: she's presented that way yeah anyway.
1: yeah she's definitely presented that way but you know do you um female like nouns and pronouns are used about her but uh you know it's she's she's uh, this creature from another world do you right you know how do you uh uh
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah parse that i guess is, is the right phrase i'm trying to i'm actually legitimately now looking at my own blog which for the past several years <laughs> i have only used to do one post a year in which i just list all of the books i read nice more because it's convenient for that than like because i think anyone cares um, oh sure but oh so I'm, i am coming across uh uh Wuthering heights by charlotte bronte Oh, okay. um, and I'm tempted to say that Catherine, who again has that Lady Macbeth syndrome of like, is she really a villain sure. per se? And like, we're we're teetering on the edge of a whole discussion about what makes someone a villain. And that's not going to be interesting or a good <laughs> use of our time. But um, Catherine right, is definitely right. at the very least sort of an anti-hero.
0: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And she's, she's a fascinating character. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's... I'm going to... I'm gonna sit on. Wow, I'm. I was about to say I'm gonna sit on Catherine, and then I decided
0: not to put it that way. <laughs> and yet, you told us you put it that way. <laughs> I was
1: creating uh, a paradox. Uh,
0: para something. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. Uh, the only other female villain I can think of right now, and it's not even literary, is the Borg Queen from Star Trek. <laughs> yeah i i was
1: i mean partly just trying to not let myself go into tv or movies because i I think there are some more uh yeah that that i could list from there but you know it's seems like cheating
0: yeah but i'm really having a hard time well even thinking of villains in general i can definitely think of a few others but like female villains i'm having oh my gosh what uh
1: now i can't remember her name. The one in Harry Potter who everyone thinks is worse than Voldemort.
0: Oh, Umbridge. Umbridge. Ugh.
1: Ugh. There we go. Dolores frickin' Umbridge.
0: Mm, Yeah. Who,
1: like, is worse than Voldemort.
0: Yeah, she kinda is. She really is. Oh, um, no! Um, I just thought of one. Um, oh, but it might be spoiler-ish. Even just to mention that this person is a villain. Uh, so, spoilers um i don't know what are you
1: spoiling
0: like see even if i name it i've spoiled it
1: (laughs) i mean if it's a book for our show i have read it so i don't know if that
0: it's not a book for our show okay but all right i'm gonna say it anyway and you've had plenty of years to read it and watch the movie so it's fine gone girl
1: oh yeah i have no i've i have read it i think i told you i read it back like
0: yeah 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 you did
1: um i i did try to watch the movie i only got about half an hour in um and it's i never not... tried watching a okay. movie
0: but it's not that it was
1: bad it's that like really uh i think it was a david fincher who made the movie um he actually really pretty successfully like tore the pages of the book out and just stuffed them into a film camera hmm. um which is often what you know uh movie directors want to do with books that they love and mm-hmm. often they don't succeed. But like he really like, you know, I could almost tell every beat of the movie just from having read the book, which like, mm-hmm. it was one of those, it's, it's sort of a paradox really with Gone Girl because it's like one of those things where, uh, it's, you know, what the creator was going for, but it also mm-hmm. made me not feel like I needed to watch the movie because I had already read the Cause book. Cause you'd read the book. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, Gone Girl's a brilliant one. And yeah, sure. now I understand everything that you're saying. So sorry to anyone <laughs> that we spoiled Gone Girl for. Though, yet again, and, you know, I don't feel cheap bringing this up again with Gone Girl because I think it's one of the central dramatic questions of that book is that you do have that, like, Lady Macbeth thing of yeah. is she a villain
0: or oh, and is it's she... it's very clear that some... Some part of the villain she is in that book is a result of her surroundings, yeah,
1: conditioning, um, right?
0: But it also yeah. seems like she's got a little bit of that Kathy Amesness where she's just evil at her core. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know
1: that she would think of herself as evil so much as like, man, like manipulative and like sure, not willing There's... to, um, not not willing to let moral considerations get in the way of her getting what she wants by literally Mm -hmm. any means at her disposal which a little bit of
0: a a nihilistic streak yeah i was gonna say
1: to the rest of us and by a lot of if not most of classical definitions that is what evil is right but you know she would she would Mm -hmm. potentially just not even engage with the concept i guess
0: yeah um
1: yeah maybe i don't know Maybe we'll have to do Gone Girl at some time at some point.
0: I've been thinking about it cuz it's it's a good book.
1: I've been like half expecting you to to bring it at some point. Sure. Um and I I say it with a little bit of chagrin though, I you know. Also <laughs> like obviously as we teeter on the edge of making this the accidental Gone Girl special like it, there's plenty to discuss in it. Right. So. right. I guess I would just feel like uh I almost lost. I guess I would just feel uh, like uh a... too much like a book club actually is all I'm going to say like sure in the sense that it's such a it's such book club bait and it is
0: I, it is very much a book club book. I don't know meant.
1: if that was specifically the author's intentions, but it's certainly how yeah, it ended up know. being marketed and being sort right. of broadcast to our culture like so you know then again maybe that would uh boost our listenership and as a as a small (laughs) podcast we we can't uh sort of like the main character of gone girl we can't sneeze really at any opportunity to uh Mm
0: -hmm.
1: grow our brand as they say to get
0: what we want to get
1: what we want yeah
0: yeah all right any other uh female literary villains
1: none come to mind
0: okay we might have to think a little more about that too, and maybe it'll come. We'll come back to it at some point. Yeah, I wouldn't mind coming back question. to it.
1: Though I'm pretty pleased with my umbrage answer.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good answer. I, uh, I was pleased to think of. I can't think of the character's name, of course, but from Gone Girl. Yeah,
1: yeah, the the Gone Girl girl, the, the girl, the Gone Girl. The Gone that's Girl. That's her. That's a character's name.
0: Yeah, her name is. is gone.
1: It seems pretty spoilery, like in the prose, especially at the beginning <laughs> when it just refers to her as like Gone Girl. <laughs> <laughs> and like hangs itself up on its grammar a lot like the girl who would later be gone but was not yet because and then you'd think like...
0: it'd be really funny but it's actually quite uh, poetic and moving when her husband is mourning after her and saying gone is gone
1: yeah gone is yeah. gone also why is my last name girl that's weird
0: <laughs> thinking about that
1: for the first time in my life
0: uh all right let's move on from this nonsense <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah we're quickly digging our pit deeper and deeper
0: um all right this right one on comes me. from uh ben's wife tori tori tekken um who asks uh this is kind of open-ended so prepare oh. yourself what is the one thing you can never forgive an author for doing
1: mm, dying dying <laughs> i'm so mad at most of my favorite authors permanently for because being most dead. of them did die
0: yeah yeah that's that's true that's, Which, like
1: yeah. non sequitur reminds me of the whole Mark Twain thing about the the uh um problem with being counted among the great authors is that they keep they have this uh habit of dying, <laughs> Shakespeare's dead, Chaucer's dead, and I'm not feeling very well myself,
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good, good old Mark Twain, yep i don't know that uh like my my first instinct is to go towards something like to write a bad book but like i'm pretty sure every author has had some sort of thing where yeah i mean that wasn't their best and you know to never forgive that's that's the one like
1: yeah like I, i i'm gonna parse that in a minute i will say though like every almost every author i've read who t- talks about writing has said some variation on the idea that like 90 percent of what you write is crap sure like for any of the the great authors we probably have only seen like one to five percent of the actual words that they have written mm-hmm. um, and the ones that we've seen more of that of we tend to think of as like garbage authors who produced one great book but like maybe they just had the unfortunate uh lack of willpower not to publish their crap sure um so you know like and also you know i would be tempted to say writing a bad book except i hate everything of steinbeck's except east of eden (laughs) so like i have gone on record on this show as contradicting that answer yeah yeah now Mm -hmm. to parse that question a little um i do have a list of things within a given book that will just make me drop the book um you know so i is in in the sense that like i can't forgive an author for doing this thing within a book sure um one that comes to mind uh and this is just real specific and i actually have better (laughs) answers but i'm gonna say this one instead um why not (laughs) is a i remember reading some fantasy novel and like uh it was it was some it was about fairies but like in the old you know badass sense of the fairies um and like you know one fairy court was at war with another one and it looked really really interesting just from the cover Hmm. and i got 10 pages in and a character ran her hands through her raven locks and that's how it was described. And it, and now granted, it was in a context where, like, the scene was already a little melodramatic and, like, it was romancy. And I was like, this is a romance novel and not a fantasy novel. And mm-hmm. I just dropped it. Mm-hmm. And I almost always give a book more than ten pages. Sometimes not that much more, but more than ten pages. But sure. I could not, I just could not anymore after that
0: happened. So, essentially turning a genre you want to read into a romance
1: yeah something like that um (laughs) yeah yeah like tricking me into reading something i hate
0: i i I did think of something uh and as far as authors it's a little more hypothetical um because the example i can think of is in film and i'm thinking of like george lucas Uh uh-huh and like essentially the idea of taking something a character a story an idea even the the idea of like the force some something that has become beloved to the readership and then totally undermining the entire thing and making it less
1: sure 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 um
0: so and i'm not gonna say universally that that's like writing a prequel i'm highly suspicious of prequels i mean but prequels to me
1: just always smack of money grabs yeah it doesn't it almost doesn't matter like it doesn't have to be that specific, um, yeah. problem. It's just that prequels always are just inherently suspicious to me. Like, unless yeah. somehow it's just the most appropriate possible thing for your story, which does happen, but,
0: um, right, yeah. But, um, like, if, if it were, like, in a fantasy sort of setting and you had the magic in the fantasy setting and then made that magic something highly mundane right (laughs) you know like with the force and the midichlorians and stuff right right or
1: like in in lord of the rings if uh the whole gandalf the Great, to gandalf the white thing had just been because like wizards are actually a computer projection of some kind
0: sure or aliens (laughs) yeah
1: yeah like they just can't die you know
0: just making some sort of top out
1: yeah you took like what was really sort of or, a very grandiose like fantasy-ish fantasy ish fantasy uh what am i trying to say like a mythological trope. you know grandeur to it and just sort of yeah sort of made it a stupid computer program
0: and maybe like this can be made a little broader too just the idea of explaining something that doesn't need to be explained like the force leave it at that we know what the force is magic leave it at that it's magic we don't need any further explanation for magic
1: so since you pushed Um, us into films i uh
0: (laughs) i didn't mean to (laughs) i know
1: i know but i'm trapping you here now um oh good no i just i just read a thing the other day um no it wasn't the other day it was a while ago so i can't remember what the actual source was but it was an article about what George Lucas has said he would have done with episodes 7, 8, and 9 if he had, you know, not gone ahead and um, become a multi-billionaire. And he said they were going to be about the Wills, W-H-I-L-L-S, who are referenced in early drafts of the original trilogy of Star Wars and in some of the, like, um stuff that lucas has written about star wars uh they're not in the movies specifically Mm. so far as i know but the wills are apparently the they're like embodiments of the pure force and basically what lucas said was that the wills are the ones that control midichlorians so through midichlorians the wills use the force to manipulate people and like he would have gone into that which a hugely conceptual like you know very much Mm -hmm. getting away from the adventure thing but b what i took away from that is that his plan was to double down on the midi chlorians. (laughs) yep so in other words Uh, if you're listening to this and you hated the last jedi believe it or not it could have been worse (laughs) Because that would create, and this is why I would hate it, it would create a completely deterministic Star Wars universe. It would completely take away any idea of free will or or, uh, um, you know, choice or uh, even like wit or, you know, uh, sort of thinking on your feet that that is like what you want from a hero of an adventure story. Um, you know, it just would have made the the Characters, the playthings of these these beings. Yeah. So yeah. That,
0: that's. hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's that's about where I would fall, I guess, on um (laughs) on that question. Um. Just yeah. And I I even I would broaden it out that way too, of just like over-explaining something that doesn't need to be explained. Yeah. Absolutely. Just, Just.
1: The other answer that comes to mind to try to bring this at all back to what the podcast is supposedly about um
0: (laughs) what is this podcast even about
1: i don't know michael what is it about uh i don't know you tell me i i would but i'd lose um (laughs) so, so uh the other answer that that uh came came to mind for Tori's question is um related to george lucas and star wars but also something you can see in actual literature um it's i i see it in stephen king to a great degree uh the internet Mm. seems for a while now but increasingly it seems like in the last year or two to feel this way about jk rowling and it's the idea Mm. that um you get too big for anyone to say no to you and then you take advantage of that um sure because you know i always quip that somewhere between 1983 and 1999 george lucas forgot how to write dialogue um but i i actually think it's more than that with the star wars movies i think it's that you know when he was making the original trilogy even though um episode four got really big really quickly
2: up Mm -hmm. through
1: producing return of the jedi like people could still say no to him or they could still say "You know, george no this is stupid we need to do a different idea um and you know he was not powerful enough to just sort of take his toys and go home but by the time that 15 years had passed or however long before he started producing episode one he got so rich that he could just single-handedly finance his own films essentially um right and therefore no one could say no to him Um, Mm -hmm. so like, you know, Harrison Ford supposedly just ad-libbed most of his lines in the original trilogy because he hated the lines Lucas had written for him. Even if any Mm -hmm. of the actors in the prequel trilogy had been like smart enough to do that, they wouldn't (laughs) have, like Lucas would have just fired, you know, would have fired them and, and gotten someone new and reshot the film and done whatever he wanted because he could. Um, sure. And I think you can see that in Stephen King's career, too, as his, like, books mm. get even thicker um, and, like, his sentences get even more florid um, as his career goes on. Like, you can just start to sort of chart the point at which editors stopped being able to edit him because now he was Stephen King and he could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, J.K. Rowling is a little bit different, but people are getting increasingly annoyed at her for just sort of editing stupid ideas into the Harry Potter universe, or at least what a lot of people think right. are stupid ideas.
0: Like, the the idea that she's not... She's not writing new Harry Potter material, except, like, the movies now for um, Fantastic, uh, Fantastic Beasts. Beasts. And even and that such, is, but...
1: like, part of this complex with her.
0: Right. But, like, just the idea of, like explaining certain things in the series or saying this is what was going on at that time explaining explaining certain
1: things that like there's never any textual evidence it's not like she's saying see i cleverly buried this into the text she's just saying no this is this way because i am god of this
0: universe and i just sort of put it on Mm -hmm. on there um right which which if you keep doing that then the story becomes boring because then there's nothing for us as the readers to do anymore it's
1: not only that it's boring it's that it you start to feel cheated because you know you you could you can sort of theorize and and uh read into it all you want but there's still an author out there who's who can just tell you no for no reason um and we're teetering on the brink of what i do find to be a very boring discussion about the death of the author
0: yep Um, let's move on to our next question let's let's do it all right are you trying um, to uh, kick think... us
1: along because we're threatening to open-end ourselves out of time for it?
0: I think we are, yeah. so...
1: <laughs> Perennial problem on this show.
0: Yeah. All right. So this comes from uh, Ethan's friend, uh, Nat.
1: Nathaniel Ryan, who is Nathaniel our Ryan. first Patreon supporter.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah, so thank you, who we love. Nathaniel. And
1: like, Nat Does... and I have been friends since high school, Um. so that's... uh uh-huh. An embarrassing amount of time now and you know we've always been both been ones for five hour conversations in which we debate about things that really are not relevant to either of us but like we just enjoy the discussion and the debate um which you know it ends up with a long history in a certain sense of trying to prove each other wrong so i can only assume that what Nat's motivation was is that he heard me say I didn't think we would ever have any Patreon supporters, and he just signed <laughs> up in order to like have that objective in order to victory in our yeah. in our long train of uh, battles.
0: Nice, right. Right, but well, well, well I, done. I mean, well done,
1: What he what he didn't calculate on is that I don't care because I'll take <laughs> it however I can get it, and you can you can put that on a T shirt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, well, oh, well. Uh, all right so here's what he says he submitted this actually before our episodes on yes, station 11 had but come after out, we had recorded but it them. was after we had already talked about station 11 so unfortunately we couldn't talk about him then but we'll talk about Excellent. it now all right so here's what he says So I'd never heard of this book and had no idea what it was about when I heard you guys announced it as your next book. I immediately downloaded it as an audiobook and started listening. I had nothing better to do at the time as I was lying on the couch unable to move, suffering from the worst flu I'd had in about five years. So thanks for (laughs) that. You're welcome. (laughs) I consider that a victory for us. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, it was kind actually kind of refreshing to read a post-apocalyptic story that was pretty well grounded in plausibility. It seemed like it seems like most post-apocalyptic stories whether good or bad end up being all about the grand destiny of humanity with liberal use of sci-fi elements or else all about the hellish true nature of humanity with everyone figuratively or literally eating <laughs> each other. I have nothing against either of these paradigms, but I find myself longing for small stories. Stories about unimportant people who don't shape the world, but are witnesses to its shaping. This book is a strong argument for the power of portraying a massive event, not by trying to find words big enough and beautiful enough to describe it, but by using incidental people and events to trace the outline of the event. This technique is also thematically appropriate for the book, since it establishes that the only way anyone survived the Georgian flu was by just avoiding it. I want to pause after that paragraph because I think that's a really good insight that we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about. Yes. um, In our episodes on Station Eleven, because these, yeah, like he says, these aren't the big people that we're following in the story. Like there's an actor, but he's already dead. Yeah, And so we're, you could say, you know,
1: (laughs) he still even fits into Nat's paradigm because, um, yep even though he's sort of a big person in the sense of having fame and wealth and power in the world, um, genre wise, he's still not a very big person at all. You know, Nat's talking about a lot of these sort of stories that if they're not epic fantasies, at least sort of take their, their um, uh, cues from epic fantasy. And so like the main characters in them literally shape the physical world one way or another. So you're yeah. talking about like the scientists who brace against the clock to find the cure for the georgian flu or something like yep. that and so you know even our, our dead famous actor in that sense is really not a big character at all
0: exactly yeah no and this like i i i'm with him on this this yearning for the small stories yeah. and seeing what's going on with the little people absolutely it's kind of the same thing that like um if you looked at well, even the Lord of the Rings kind of does this to an sure. extent, too. Where you're following kind of little people who just happen to have this big thing. But, like, how interesting wouldn't it be to have that story told from the perspective of a family living in right, Gondor? Right. <laughs> see, what's going on with when all these big things are happening right. with the little people? It's an interesting Absolutely. concept. I, I honestly, if somebody were to write that, I probably I wouldn't mean, read it. I promise because... you
1: that there are several hundred if not several thousand fan fiction stories
0: that right we could but find like that right kind of feeds the whole point too that yeah. it is interesting and it's so interesting that fan fictions Absolutely. exist yeah, for no,
1: and, and there's you know fan fiction even and even published anthology stories in the star wars universe again that are pretty much that same thing they're not you know mm-hmm. uh, i want to say griffin McElroy just wrote one or that came out in an anthology a year or two ago that was like from the hmm. perspective of one of the Jawas who sold R two D two to. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, that's awesome. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and and again, like yeah, that kind of thing is is clearly interesting to the right audience.
0: Right. Yep. All right. Uh, he goes on. The Prophet was a weak point of the novel, I think. He definitely moved the plot forward, but his character seemed pieced together from characters from other dystopic um, novels. He's clear. There,
1: yeah. I, that is one thing I did think about The Prophet, and um, I think the stuff we talked about with The Prophet in the episodes we did do was more interesting to me, but, like, that's... I find that to be a completely fair uh comment on the oh absolutely and that was probably the weakest point of Mm -hmm. his character was the fact that this was almost a pastiche Mm -hmm. of you know you know the hand of one um character from one post-apocalyptic novel and the foot of another another one Mm -hmm. you know kind of a thing
0: yeah and you know even reading the novel i i liked the passages with the prophet the least i think like he just he wasn't interesting to me a crucial part
1: of the tapestry and we talked about sort of how this novel functions as a tapestry but
0: right and i wonder too if um emily mandel kind of realized that too which is why he died in such a kind of anticlimactic way like we talked about how little plot the novel actually <laughs> right. had. If it had plot, it would have been following the prophet, right. and there would have been a bigger build to his villainy and a bigger sort of um, climax with with him and stuff. Yeah. And that the, the climax was there, and it was at the right place, just spatially right, yes. in the novel. But it wasn't really a climax.
1: No. Um, and I I do think that does fit with the rest of the novel and even with yeah. what Matt is saying here at the beginning about it being more the quote unquote little people because even the prophet, yep. much as he is sort of a mover and shaker within the world of the novel, is on the grander scale uh, sort of a little person. Um yeah. you know the mm-hmm. the um oh man here I go with character names again, but the woman who drew station eleven within the novel um you know uh, Miranda. yeah and she dies what in indonesia i want to say or something Thailand. like that yeah um but
0: indonesia yeah
1: you know yeah after the flu the prophet would never have had an influence in indonesia you know what i mean he just right. picked he just uh, sort of influenced this relatively small pocket of land um that the story the post-apocalyptic part of the story happened to take place in right um so even there he's small beans uh yep (laughs) but i do think i do think that makes a good point that you know a lot of the stuff about the prophet including a lot of the religious stuff the stuff about him like reading the book of revelation outside of the plane full of corpses or whatever like a lot of that is shorthand that only works because culturally we are so familiar with these sorts of stories (laughs) Mm -hmm. um right right in other words if you if you envision a world where this was the first story of this type the prophet is probably the least like uh the thing that works the least well the thing that that mm-hmm. seems the least coherent if you don't already have all kinds of other stories to sort of cue you into what's going on here
0: true well, continuing yeah continuing on i'm gonna say if you don't have right. anything no, no, nope, nope.
1: I, I, I've exhausted we'll my comments we so far. Race, race right. to the end of this and bring this episode in on time. <laughs> History says no, but, we'll see if but we... you know. <laughs> all
0: right. Uh, the Prophet, he is clearly supposed to be a charismatic leader, but his actual appearances and dialogue didn't impress me as charismatic yeah. at all. And his zealotry was supposed to be derived from a few specific resources: his mom, the Bible, the quarantined plane. But his actual dogma felt generically evil. We're right because we're right. If we kill anyone, it's because they're wrong. I get to have lots of wives because I say so. He's right. I have nothing to yeah. say. Yeah. I mean, that. some
1: some <laughs> of that is wrapped up in the prophet's historical antecedents. Um, the idea of sure. these these sort of you know burned-over districts, like what Joseph Smith came out of. Um, prophets oh, yeah. who did sort of just make up their own rules and um, what they amounted mm-hmm. to was a bunch of charisma to make people listen to them and then the idea that we're right because we're right and I get to have lots of wives because God mm-hmm. told me I could which amounts to because I said so right. but
0: i think what he's getting at too with his lack of charisma though is is kind of true that we're not shown his charisma as much as we're shown the effects of his charisma which is effectively just telling us he's charismatic absolutely yeah
1: no as far as especially the characterization point that nat makes is i think very very valid
0: right which to be fair i'm not sure how i would write a an evil charismatic leader necessarily. I if if I had an idea maybe I could come up with it, but it strikes me as something that'd be very difficult it, to yeah, do. Yeah,
1: it definitely does, and I don't know that that Emily Mandel was interested in doing that.
0: Right. I don't think she was quite as interested in the Prophet as much as the other characters yeah. either. And like in in, in any And I case, think she was
1: so... maybe was maybe more interested in the effects that a character like the Prophet has mm-hmm. than on the character itself. But you mm-hmm. know that said I do still think that that there was a lack of showing us what we're told he is yeah yeah, yeah. Go on. all
0: right uh next paragraph no unless no, you've no, got no, anything please, more go. there <laughs> all right Occasionally, the dialogue became overdramatic. I'm pretty sure that people wouldn't say the ruins of Toledo in casual conversation, even if Toledo were ruined. They'd just say Toledo. They also wouldn't keep switching between different phrases for the event. Pandemic, flu, Georgian flu, end of the world, collapse. When people talk about something a lot, they tend to fall into simple patterns and use just one or two names for something. Okay.
1: I have to say I agree with the first half of that statement definitively. Okay. Yeah, just say Toledo. Um... My only thought on that is that you know she's clearly influenced by Shakespeare, who is, whose dialogue is nothing if not stylized, Um,
0: and you need a lot of synonyms for things. Yeah, so
1: that's that's where I disagree (laughs) with the second half of that. I think a world, a literally world-shattering or at least literally civilization-shattering event like this would have a lot of names.
0: Mm -hmm. And here's here's the other um, defense I'll I'll give to the writing on this. I'm right with you there with that. I, I this the different terms for the event um it did kind of throw me a little bit but the defense I'll give to it uh is we're kind of at the point here where people are still scattered yes. all over the place by the end of the novel then humanity is a little more centralized again and a common word is going to take precedence over all the others I think
1: eventually it um, will I don't know that we're even there by the end of the novel
0: cuz I think we're getting potentially, there by the
1: end. yeah, and I mean I think that goes into a lot of choices that will have to be made after the action right. of the novel, where where it goes there. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I guess I just am thinking of historical antecedents like the the Black Plague or um, Mongol invasions sure. or the the barbarian invasions that ended the Roman Empire. Um, partly because I'm listening to the British History podcast, and that's exactly where we are. There, <laughs> um, I think the British you know experienced the fall of rome very differently from the people in rome itself or even the people in constantinople and you know and partly this is sort of a language difference thing like they're i just went over probably 10 different linguistic areas there but you know i think they would call those things different things even if they were speaking a common language just because of the scattered sure sort of decentralized perspective
0: there sure I think, like it, to to defend uh, Nat's position too a little bit though is like even within groups, like within the traveling symphony, sure. I think they varied how they talked. Yeah, about it. Yeah, and
1: I could see, I could see Nat's point there in that within a group yeah. like that, you'd probably pretty
0: they would fall into yeah. a pattern and they would pick one that's convenient. All right, next paragraph. I liked the climax between Kirsten and Tyler, but I wish it were a bit sharper, a bit more ironic. When they had their confrontation and Kirsten recognizes quotes from the comic book and starts quoting it back to Tyler, I fully expected Tyler to break character and say, hey, how did you know about that? And then August would take the opportunity to shoot him. Then Kirsten, who's been wanting to get more information about the comic for years, would have just missed her chance and she would have accidentally been instrumental in killing the prophet in the precise moment when she, he showed some humanity as it actually plays out it's not clear to me that their exchange had any real effect the wikipedia plot summary suggests that the ran- that that random underling only killed tyler because kirsten was distracting him but i don't think that this interpretation is supported by the text um my only comment there is i kind of agree with him but for any of his ideas to fit the book would have to have a plot <laughs> um <laughs> yes to the book
1: yeah, and I mean we kind of we kind of covered this when you were yeah talking about that climax uh, a few minutes ago that
0: which I didn't intend to anticipate his
1: comment but... <laughs> Right, but um sort of getting him here to actually dialogue with it that's that's what we're left with yep yep writing is an imperfect medium
0: uh next uh i didn't like that the point of view occasionally went from third person limited to third person omniscient point of view changes like this frequently bug me and i don't think the omniscient bits were vital, vital to the book
1: yeah um i'm i was debating how much i should uh say here because this is something that nat has been i i would like to say one of my most faithful friends as far as like giving me feedback on writing that I send him, um, which I feel I don't deserve because I never give other people feedback. But uh, he's always, always been a shark as far as point of view shifts go. Like he, he just always sort of gets on that. And I don't know how to say it. Just, just, I don't know. It it bothers him. It, Mm -hmm. I didn't notice any of what he's talking about but i do believe him that it's there um so yeah i guess guess it
0: it didn't strike i kind of know what he's talking about and i think it's kind of a um a um uh, post-apocalyptic trope sort of thing to do this where you've got your characters that you're following and so you get the third person limited point of view and then you kind of broaden out and you get like a side story of something else happening and that i like that does bug me a little bit when it's ha- when it happens in less good books right. <laughs> than this one is yeah but um i guess i didn't notice it as much for this one but i again i also kind of i i believe him that he's there that it's yeah. there yeah um yeah all right uh next paragraph i'm very pleased that certain things were never revealed kirsten's lost year the quarantined plane the city with electricity i 100 percent agree
1: (laughs) yeah that's actually one of my favorite tropes when it's done well is just the dropping in of something like that that suggests a whole world and then never sort of revealing it yep
0: well it leaves it big you know kind of like the opposite of what we were talking about with jk rowling just kind of inserting things and saying this is what's happened right this is what's behind all that and stuff and it's like no we don't want to actually know that we want to be able to imagine it leave it let it be a whole world that actually exists out there right that we don't know right yeah so that yeah i'm with him there that's awesome
1: yeah 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 it reminds Um, me of um yeah the prestige in the film uh there's just one line where it you know it's it's a I want to say a fairly realistic film as far as science fiction films go. Um, It suggests that everything that happens in it is sort of explainable by science. Uh, Mm. Except there's one line where the theater producer who sees one of the the duplication tricks the first time says, oh my, the last Mm. time I've seen real magic was Trails Off, and nothing in the entire film ever comes back to that um yep and it's just tantalizing but it's spectacular
0: i know exactly what you mean and yeah that's that is yeah i i hadn't thought of that but that is exactly the same thing and it's wonderful yeah. so yep. that's really all
1: all the thought i have on that
0: all right uh he's got one more paragraph all right um to round out his comments here on this book Um, So, lastly, there's a bit around 80% through when it's following Clark's actions just after Arthur's death, and Clark remarks several times on how doggedly Arthur's lawyer is working and calling people. Did either of you at this point have a horrible premonition that Arthur's death was going to somehow turn out to be the reason the Georgian flu spread in the first place? I was bracing myself for a ridiculous plot twist, and I will say yes, I was. (laughs) Yeah,
1: um... I guess I wasn't because I already trusted the author by that point. Um okay. Like in 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 anyone else's hands I would have been probably bracing myself for something along those lines,
0: but um I I'm really glad it wasn't. Yeah. Because if it had been right. that would have been just so hokey and unnecessary. I
1: guess in a in a sense I was bracing myself for a plot twist, but I was expecting it to just be much more sort of mundane, I guess, as far as, like... Sure. Oh, there's some inheritance of Arthur's that's going to come into play in the post-apocalyptic, you know, mm-hmm. thing, like, maybe it's maybe Kirsten is going to yeah. stumble across it and it'll save her temporarily. Yeah, I know what you I mean. I would have expected yeah, something like that, I'm really like glad that, no
0: maybe. silly thing like that happened, but... Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, like, I, I guess, you know, by the time that that came up in the novel, I was already like, no, this author wouldn't do this to me, and I just was rewarded for that faith i guess Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah all right well that ends um that comment and question so anything else to say about that or station 11
1: uh not particularly i mean i could probably spend another hour talking about station 11 overall but nothing pressing comes to mind
0: all right, all right. Well, then, um, that, uh, I think, concludes uh, this episode for our listener special. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, that would bring us to ratings. Uh, everyone gets five so stars. E- everyone. I was going to say, <laughs> what do you rate our, our listeners who responded? <laughs> I'm with you. Five stars for everyone. Ben's,
1: Ben's question was kind of garbage, but everyone else gets five stars. No, I'm just kidding. I love you, Ben, and everyone
0: all right um so uh in uh in our uh upcoming episodes we'll be uh discussing things not seen by andrew clements so uh give that a listen and uh follow us along give us your feedback um this was a special listener response special but we'll try to keep uh, track of all of your comments and stuff and uh, answer them as much as we can uh, so you can go to the contact section of the Tapestry Radio website, tapestryradio.org contact, I believe. Otherwise, you can find it in the menu. Uh, put Scotch Talk in the subject line, uh, and uh, that'll help us find what you're talking about. Uh, you can find us at Room with Scotch on Twitter uh, or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we'll let you in uh, as long as you're not a robot. Um we'll also do your homework. Uh no, we don't promise to do it well nor do we condone plagiarism. Just go to our website tapestradio.org/scotchcast and fill out the form there at the top of the, at the top of the page. We'll do our best and we'll make it fun. If you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio network like Intermission, Here's Johnny and Pokémon Rollout and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We don't pay to advertise, so that's how others can learn about us and enjoy the content you enjoy. Uh, As for me, you can find me in the Tap House and on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Ethan, where can the listener find you?
1: I am at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. And also you can find my webcomic, Pin Porter Girl Detective, the... Film noir slash fairy tale mashup starring a schoolgirl detective at pinporterdetective.com.
0: All right. So with that, until next time, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if we want to. And also,
2: thank hey, you. Yes, we do. <laughs>